Political pundits have been speculating about the impending indictment of former President Trump, but none of them knew exactly what the charges would be. So all of their analysis were based on guessing. We've now seen the charges for about the last two hours. This is the first opportunity to evaluate the charges, knowing what they actually are. Our guest is Paul Charlton, former U.S. attorney for Arizona, who spent the last couple of hours reading these indictments, and he is our guest. We will discuss the legal aspects of the case and leave the politics to another discussion. From KTAR News, this is The Think Tank, hosted by Dr. Mike O'Neill. Well, welcome to the show. And uh, a question, you know, our suspense is over. We know what the charges are. What are they? So, Mike, what we know so far is that there are 34 counts of uh, filing and fraudulently filing falsified New York business records in order to conceal criminal conduct. Has the indictment specified what that criminal conduct is? It's an interesting question because typically you would expect an indictment to spell out exactly and by statute citation what the violations alleged were. In this instance, they do not. The only reason we know about what those allegations are is because the uh, Manhattan district attorney in a press conference after the initial arraignment mentioned what they were. And we now know that the crimes that the DA alleges were uh, committed in order to conceal this criminal conduct, which is the falsely filing business records, were a violation of the local, which is to say New York election laws, a violation of the federal election laws, and he said tax laws. So we have the misdemeanor offense of filing false business records in order to conceal, so says the DA, these other crimes, including election crimes and a tax crime. I listened to that, and it sounds like they've gone with the core, relatively simple stuff. In other words, it's 34 instances of the same thing, in effect. Is that correct? So there's really only one mega, mega charge here. Correct. So you think about, um, I have an obligation again, says the district attorney, to file honest business records. He pointed out a number of times during his press conference that we are the center of the financial world, and we, the United States, and the world has to rely on the fact that the business people in this community file accurate business records. He says former President Trump didn't do so, and that's the misdemeanor. And then he says, and the felony here, what makes it a felony offense, is that he did so to conceal why he was making these payments and the motive says the district attorney, is that he did so so that then-candidate Trump could become President Trump without having to worry about these allegations of having had an affair with an adult film star. And if I understand it correctly, they have to establish that that was a motivation to aid his campaign. Otherwise, it's not a campaign violation, correct? Correct. The intent was to commit this act so as to conceal this event. Now, motive is always relevant, Mm -hmm. but not a necessary element of the offense. But the intent 
is critical here, Mike, and you're exactly right. Okay, what if the intent is multiple? Let's say, for ex- is it a defense if Donald Trump were to say, well, there was some incidental desire to aid the campaign, but my real purpose was to avoid strife with my wife, for example? We, the former president, all of us can be of two minds as it relates to any number of acts that we commit Mm -hmm. every single day. So, yes, you can be of two minds. You can want to keep this a secret from your, he would say, his wife. And I believe that's some of the defense that people have posited Mm -hmm. in a public arena. And at the same time, know that I have to keep this quiet so that I can have an election free of this kind of controversy. Well, if it's both, is that a campaign violation? It's a great question. And, uh, and my follow-up question will be, what if it's 99% personal and 1% uh, political? Is that is that a campaign violation? I don't think the government is going to have to divide up the intent aspect. Mm-hmm. They're only going to have to show that this was a knowing violation, that mm-hmm. the president did this, the former president did this, in order to conceal of either these election violations mm-hmm. or tax violations. And the electoral um, uh, motive... Is probably very strongly suggested by the timing of this. This occurred, I believe, right before the election. In my That's opinion. right. That's exactly right. And and they don't spell out, they don't say exactly who these women are, but we know from some mm-hmm. earlier reporting that this deals with a former playboy playmate. It also deals with a former adult film star. So they're, but they've got both of them in there in separate counts. They've got counts. both of them in there in separate mm-hmm. counts. And then they have um, a number of allegations that relate to um, a newspaper that was uh, doing what they call catch and kill, right? So they would pay that these was people. The New York Daily News, I think it was. I, I think it. I think it was a Florida-based newspaper. Okay. But it was time. Mr. Pecker, right? correct? It was okay. Mr. Pecker, and uh, they they indicate that he was working with former President Trump to assist him in the concealing of these events. They indicate that some of the records, the business records that he filed, were also fraudulent, and they say that President Trump aided in that mm-hmm. filing of false business records as well. So the the scheme here is broad in the sense that it involves a number of people, perhaps a number of witnesses, but as you say, relatively simple. And I think it is the simplicity of these allegations that has a number of people wondering, what weight can we give these allegations? Do we know what the prosecutors say occurred here? And that's all we know so far. So we knew very little yesterday. We know a little bit more now. But, Mike, we don't yet know what weight, how much uh, we should now say this will truly convince a jury. Because, as you know, former President Trump is presumed innocent unless and until a jury says otherwise. So you've indicated that you had not, you have the I knew you would have the the indi- actual indictment itself. But you said there was a, a second document that was released that's also very revealing. The prosecution issued two pleadings today. First is the indictment, which is like many indictments, a very bare bones allegation of the dates of the offense and what occurred. There is a much more detailed pleading that they filed called a statement of facts in which they give much more detail, including, I found very interesting, a recording uh, that took place between Mr. Cohen, former President Trump's then lawyer, and President Trump himself. And it is that kind of evidence, a recording, for example, that prosecutors will necessarily have to have in hand because, as you know, Mr. Cohen is, without exaggeration or hyperbole, a convicted liar committed perjury before Congress and was convicted of that crime. 
So if you're a prosecutor and one of your witnesses has already been proven beyond a reasonable doubt to be a liar, you need evidence separate and apart from whatever testimony you may get here, the prosecutor Mm -hmm. claims, that they have a recording of a conversation between then-candidate Trump and his lawyer, Mr. Cohn. That, that strikes me as potentially devastating. It's an extraordinary piece of evidence as related in this pleading. Now, of course, we don't know what the defense lawyer's view of this mm-hmm. will be, whether or not they think it's authentic or otherwise. But if it is accurate, one of the aspects of the recording that the prosecutor said occurred here was that then-candidate Trump was very much aware of this hush money payment which, again, is not a crime all by itself. But it makes it impossible for him to argue or makes it surely very difficult to argue. Oh, this was so lo- lo- below my pay grade. I didn't. They did it on their own. I had no knowledge. Oh, I'm shocked. Precisely. And we have heard the president say that. I don't know what my lawyer was doing. I have no mm-hmm. idea. But here's a recording that indicates he very much knew what was occurring and, in fact, suggested that the payment, $150,000, be made in cash. So not only was he aware of the payment, but suggested a method in which the payment should be made. Were you surprised that the, and I assume it's 34, and but it's 34 kind of the same, it, it, like you write one check for part of reimbursement and then another, that's a separate count, correct? correct. So it's, and, and so there's a lot of that in there, sort of doing a whole lot of things, but all in furtherance of one or two two being the two women, two separate instances, but kind of the same thing over. All relating to the falsifying of business records Mm -hmm. and then the attempt to conceal those false business records. Does this, do these charges constitute or just suggest a motive for tax evasion? I haven't seen that there is a motive for tax evasion in Mm -hmm. here. Uh, And again, motive is relevant. Prosecutors are allowed to introduce evidence of motive. Defense attorneys Mm -hmm. can also introduce evidence of motive if they think it's exculpatory. Well, as a small business, what the first thing that went to my mind is, okay, if I write a check or cash for $150,000 to a porn star to keep your mouth shut about an affair, that's not a legitimate tax deduction. If, however, I write a bunch of extra checks to my own attorney for quote-unquote legal work or, or, or something like for any business purpose, that is a tax deduction, and that sure sounds to me like tax evasion. And if that were the evidence at your hypothetical mm-hmm. trial, prosecutors would be allowed to argue, here is the motive for Mike's having lied about the payment so mm-hmm. as to get him a benefit in the paying of his taxes. Mm-hmm. But there isn't a tax evasion charge on the on the list of there are no and that was one of the questions that they asked the DA mm-hmm. why aren't we seeing these independent charges if there was an election law violation mm-hmm. why haven't we seen separate and apart and all by itself mm-hmm. a charge that then candidate Trump violated the election laws of New York he gave a very careful answer one in which he didn't directly answer the question said these are the charges essentially that we're comfortable with these are Mm -hmm. the charges we've decided to bring so your question is a good one we haven't seen those underlying charges those substantive offenses if you will Mm -hmm. but they know now thanks to the press conference that they relate to the desire to conceal they were the reason Mm -hmm. for the uh, filing of false business records i just think about that and and maybe it's the the political context that comes in you say tax evasion, you're talking about something 
that most citizens intuitively understand. We all pay taxes, and we resent it if other people, particularly people with a lot of money and a lot of income, don't pay taxes. That's a tough uh, charge to handle politically, as opposed to most people don't run business. Falsifying business records is by itself a little bit abstract, I think, to an ordinary citizen or a juror. It can be. Mm-hmm. Um, some things would not be abstract uh, mm-hmm. for the prosecutor, for example, trying to keep an illicit affair a secret. Mm-hmm. Trying to keep an illicit affair a secret when you're running for office makes sense the, to the common juror as the, well. But the first one is not a crime. Nor yeah. is paying uh-huh. the woman with whom you had the illicit mm-hmm. affair to keep quiet. The hush money in and of itself, mm-hmm. not a crime statewide, not a crime federally, perfectly mm-hmm. Allowed, let's say, under the not law. Not necessarily. Morals, okay, morals, morals and ethics aside. Sure. But the, but the law does not punish anybody for making that kind of arrangement. In mm-hmm. fact, and to a, with a less salacious degree, non-disclosure agreements are often made. But the, the crime here becomes how it is you book those payments. How did you mm-hmm. enter that payment into your business records? Was it accurate or was it inaccurate? Here, the prosecutor alleges it was inaccurate and it was done so to conceal other crimes. And it was, am I correct in saying I think they were put in as this is legal fees or something like that? They were listed as legal fees when, in fact, I don't think there's much dispute that they were not legal fees. Mm -hmm. One of the arguments that you sometimes hear the defense attorneys make is that at best, at best, these are misdemeanor offenses because the false entry of the business records is a misdemeanor. And the question they ask is, Mm -hmm. would you truly charge a former president with 34 misdemeanors? And so that's part of the argument that they are making, that the only reason we are here today is because the, def- the DA, a Democrat, is politically motivated and has, if I can use this word, trumped up charges against <laughs> former President Trump, so as to gain a benefit politically. When you described uh, what's alleged earlier, uh, you used a verb, filed, in terms of business records. Um, was that intentional? I mean, were these records merely kept or there, were they filed with any public entity? It's a great question. I don't see that they were filed with a public mm. entity, but they were kept and they were available for review uh, at some point in mm. time and that the entry of those records was misleading. And and that is a misdemeanor That is a in, mis- and, in and of itself, even though it's not filed with with uh, a tax agency or somebody else. Correct. That's the allegation that the prosecutor is making. Okay. Um, the other thing I just struck me I want to ask you about, um, the judge set a uh, next hearing date in December with a presumptive trial to be in January. That's what, nine, ten months? Count them up where we in, you know, this is... This is 1st of April. That, that's trial nine months from now. Is that the norm? That seems like an awful, awful long time. And secondly, it seems to me uh, likely that in January, the uh, former president will argue, well, we're in the middle of political season. We need, to, we need to push this back until after the election. The three best defenses for a defense attorney in a white collar case mm-hmm. are in this order. Delay. Delay and delay. <laughs> so the the defense attorneys here will do their very best to push this matter off. They will do their very best to file pleadings that will, they'll say, under the law, 
require that this case be dismissed. One of the arguments we've heard people make many times is that the statute of limitations has expired Mm -hmm. and this case cannot go forward. So we're going to see a number of pleadings filed. We're going to see a number of continuances asked of the judge so that this case does not go to trial. And I think it is highly improbable that this case will be tried in January. I think it's highly improbable it'll be charged or excuse me, tried in the next year and a half, maybe even two years. These cases inevitably take a long time, and I think it's going to take a long time here before this case is tried. And, Mike, as you know, there are other investigations in the wings. Mm -hmm. Some of those investigations involve, at least in terms of the allegations, much more serious issues, Mm -hmm. like how it is you maintain classified documents. So we'll have to see whether or not any of those other investigations uh, come to fruition. They may or may not. If they do, I suspect that's going to complicate this trial schedule on this current matter as well. Uh, Given the likelihood of requests for delays, in your mind, why would a judge not have set a a trial date in 60 or 90 days, something like that, knowing, knowing full well that there'll be all sorts of requests to continue? So 60 or 90 days is light speed uh, is and in, in, in a case such as this one. It is probably the standard practice to set this case back in the way that this judge did. There is going mm-hmm. to be a very real attempt, a difficult one to achieve, but a very real attempt to treat former President Trump as you would any other person who was charged with these crimes. Mm-hmm. I suspect that the January trial date is a trial date that you would set in an ordinary case such as this one that didn't Mm. involve a former president of the United States. Mm. I guess my takeaway from that is the system does indeed work slowly. Well, it works slowly, but let me say this as well. Um, I am a firm believer that our criminal justice system, for all of its many faults, is the greatest system of Mm. justice in the world. And if Mr. Trump is not guilty, he will have the opportunity and be shown to be not guilty. If he is guilty, I believe that the jury, if it ever gets to Mm -hmm. a jury, will make a decision that he is guilty. I have a great deal of faith that this process will play out the right way. If former President Trump is being prosecuted because of political reasons, he'll have that opportunity to make that argument in a court of law, not in TV, not on any other media, Mm -hmm. but in a court of law, he'll have that opportunity. He'll have an opportunity to put all of those defenses that are viable legal defenses in front of a jury. So um, there's a lot of um, energy, let's say, uh, and and we should be paying close attention to the fact Mm -hmm. that a former president has just been charged with 34 felony offenses. But I think it is appropriate to step back and to assess where we are in terms of what we are as a nation. Mm -hmm. We are a nation of laws, whether this case should or shouldn't have been brought, will be determined by a trier of fact and a judge And that will either be the downfall of this former president or the downfall of the DA who brought these charges. One of the two is going to occur here. And that system of justice of ours, um, I think, is going to help us understand who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Let me ask your judgment about one other thing, which is that, as you pointed out, this is the first ever indictment of a former president. And there probably was a great reluctance for any prosecutor to be the first to do that. There are at least three other significant investigations going on. The Georgia investigation on uh, election tampering de facto, uh, the uh, January 6th investigation, and uh, I'm forgetting there's a third one. that The, the, the classified documents. Classified, absolutely. Classified documents. In each case, 
um, is being handled by a separate prosecutor at a separate level of government. Do you think that this indictment might in any way influence any of of the other prosecutors who were considering not so much the merits of the case, but the the wisdom of indicting a former president? Sort of like that balloon has been burst. That has now happened. And if somebody, one of these other prosecutors were to proceed, they would no longer be the first person to ever indict a former president. Do you think it would not push somebody in it, but to but to sort of remove what might have been an inhibition to act. I think inhibition is a great mm-hmm. word to describe this because prosecutors should, and I believe by and large with some rare exceptions do, treat all people equally. Everyone should be treated mm-hmm. the same under the law. But it would be a mistake for a prosecutor to think that I can dive into a case that alleges that a former president of the United States committed a crime because the allegation will be that I am acting politically. So I need to be careful to mm-hmm. make sure that I am conducting myself in a way that I am beyond reproach. That's key. Mm-hmm. But it is also true to say that perhaps not for the current prosecutors on the current investigations, but let's take a hypothetical for the next president, whoever that will be. That when that president leaves office, will this event give greater latitude to any other local county attorney, any other local DA anywhere in the United States, and there are hundreds of those, to bring charges against a former president knowing that this dam has already been broken, this issue has already been broached, this idea of charging a former president won't be as novel as it is now. And so it is that inhibition that might otherwise give you caution or pause as a prosecutor will be lessened to some degree. If uh, this case gets pushed back, you say it's not going to happen in January and all like gets pushed back. We go through the electoral season and Donald Trump is reelected as president of the United States. Would that put all of these prosecutions on indefinite hold? It's a great question because <laughs> the Department of Justice, as you know, uh, has a policy that it uh, it is not appropriate to charge a sitting president of the United States. But that is a federal Not a state, yes. Not a state policy. And so states may and might continue to bring their prosecutions. Fannie Willis, the prosecutor that you mentioned in Georgia who was investigating Mm -hmm. uh, uh, tampering with the election perhaps, she would be free to pursue her prosecution. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if, following through on your hypothetical, uh, the once and future president of the United Mm -hmm. States, Trump, would go to court and say, I want a stay. I want to stop mm-hmm. that state prosecution until I'm done dealing with the nation's business. It's just too important to have to sit in a trial and be out of the White House for some number mm-hmm. of days or weeks. That might happen. Uh, but there are so many steps in between that charges have to be brought. President Trump would have to be elected again. But there is a... But it's a, the, all those are, are very plausible. So, uh, uh, the likelihood of a charge seems high. Uh, the possibility of an electoral win is certainly viable. The, these are not wildly impossible things. They are in the universe of possibilities. <laughs> and um, if you've been watching the polls, at least as it relates to the Republican Party, mm-hmm. uh, the president's popularity has gained, not decreased as a result of these charges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't know the long-term impact of that, hearing evidence and all that, but I think it was an instinct. Among his supporters, I think it 
brought people back in. His hardcore supporters are absolutely believing the political prosecutor. Though I, I think the uh, prosecutor in the in the snippet of the uh, of the press conference I heard was rather effective on that point, talking about we handle hundreds of cases just like this every year. And so they have. If you look mm-hmm. at the record, he has, mm-hmm. in fact, brought a number of cases that relate to the falsifying of business records. Both he and his predecessor, Cyrus Vance, have done so. So um, we're getting near the end of our time. Anything else you would like to suggest that we watch for over the period? I mean, it's a long time between now and uh, he won't have to even show up for anything else until December. I think that's right. And so I think here's something. What should we look for between now and then? Here's what interests me. Um, uh, there was no, there was a great deal of discussion and concern about whether or not the prosecutor's office would seek some kind of a gag order to prevent the mm-hmm. president from talking about this case. It's my opinion that if you were the prosecutor, you might invite President Trump to talk about this case often and frequently <laughs> uh, because everything he says can be uh, something that you might seek to introduce in court. So it'll be interesting to see how the president talks about this case. As you know, there were also some emails, um, I should say um, posts, not emails, but posts that seemed to threaten the DA. We'll see whether or not any of those come up again in the future. So uh, what President Trump says, how it is he posts his thoughts about this case versus what his lawyers do is going to be very interesting, I think, as we go forward. Well, the judge tolerate the uh, Mr. Trump basically attacking him and the judiciary for being unfair and political. I don't think there would be much that you could say about clearly First Amendment views from former President Trump, but threatening somebody or encouraging others to do someone else physical harm has. But if he were to say something like, oh, this this judge is a long term Democrat and he has a bias, has always had a bias against or something like that. So I, I don't think there's anything that the judge can or would do if I were mm-hmm. former President Trump's lawyer. I am not. But were I, mm-hmm. I would say you've got to stop not talking true. about the judge in that way because we need a fair and impartial judge. And you are encouraging him to dislike our case mm-hmm. and you in particular if you continue to talk about him and confront him in this way. Well, I think it was just the other day he, he responded to a question about the documents saying, you know, of course I could take. Well, it was the interview with Sean, Sean Hannity and he said, uh, yeah, I can take them. I can read them. I can do it. They're mine, which I'm sure gave apoplexy to his attorneys. So it is it is an interesting fact to me that the prosecutors did not seek a gag order here. And it may be because they understand that the president is wont to speak quite a bit about these different political and legal risks that he faces. Well, thank you very much, Paul Charlton. I certainly know a lot more than I did a half hour ago. And I thank you for, as always, for your your sanguine observations. Kind of you don't like me, Mike. Thank you. Take care. 